things. Beloved congregation, of all of the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the ones that has particularly stuck with me over the years is that of Matthew 25, what's called the parable of the talents. And perhaps you're familiar with that parable. There you have the Lord Jesus telling the story of a rich man who left to a far country and left a great sum of money, a a talent as it was called, to three of his servants. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. Now the first two servants, they used what they had received from their master. And they bought and they traded and they were able to double what they had received and they commended this to their master upon his return and received a blessing. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But it was rather different with the third servant who'd received the one talent. He, he took that sum of money and he went away and buried it into the ground. Did nothing with it whatsoever. And upon, upon his master's return, he he came to him and said, said something that is, is very arresting. What he said was, Lord, I knew that you were a hard man. You gather where you have not reaped. And so I knew that if I did not improve what you've given to me, you would deal harshly with me. So here, here is what you gave me. Here is your money. And the master, he looked at him and called him a wicked and a lazy servant. And what he did was he condemned this, this servant. He bound him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. A terrible Fate for that person. And setting forth something of the reality of the Christian church. There are those who receive great blessings from the way of the Lord by way of gospel opportunities. Where God reveals himself and the way of salvation and the truth of the Lord Jesus to a person. Rather than taking those opportunities and using them, there is the temptation to squander such opportunities, to bury our talent into the ground. And you notice that it was traced back to a very uh, resentful attitude of that servant toward his master. He thought of his master as a hard man, uh, an unfair man, or, or even a cruel man. And Jesus was seeking to explain the way in which some people think about God. Rather than thinking of God as gracious, merciful, and, and utterly generous towards us, we come to have hard thoughts of God. Thinking about him in bitter and resentful ways, blaming him for this or that aspect of our lives where we are unhappy. Thinking of him in an utterly unworthy way. This 
in some ways characterizes the heart of a, of a genuine unbeliever, someone who rejects the messages of the gospel, rejects the pleadings and the promises and the offers of salvation in Jesus Christ and would rather harden their hearts to reject that message. But it can also, this spirit of, we could say, ingratitude, resentment, can also come in some ways to influence a true child of God, a true Christian believer. You see in seasons of backsliding where we are not thriving spiritually, we're not walking in the ways that the Lord would have us to walk. It can be traced to a sort of spirit of ingratitude that has come to grip us. Where we think of God as someone who has held back good things from us. This sort of a tight-gripped, greedy, stingy master rather than the one who gives liberally, freely, and generously. There would be many portions of Scripture that could minister to someone in, in such a case. But for myself, I think of this text of which we've read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. It is a special healing medicine to those who are afflicted with this terrible sickness of being blind to the amazing generosity of God. Here is something that ought to captivate us. And maybe particularly as we reflect upon what we experienced this morning in the Lord's Supper, that visible picture of Christ's death for sinners, his suffering and for his salvation. Let us give all attention to this great theme of the amazing generosity of God. And I'd like to open up this text under three thoughts. First, this generosity, it is proven. In the second place, it is vast. And in the third place, we will see that it is free. The generosity of God, it is proven, it is vast. And it is free. It is proven. If there was anything that we could take away from this glorious chapter of Romans 8, it is that here is a Christian, the Apostle Paul, who is brought to the very mountaintops of awe and wonder and the greatness and the goodness and the majesty of God in Jesus Christ. He's reflected upon the glorious realities of the converted Christian who walks by the Spirit and not by the flesh. He has thought about how these ones, the very children of God, they yearn for the promised new heavens and the new earth in which every tear will be wiped away and they will be brought into the glorious presence of God in new and amazing ways. He's come to these sorts of themes from something of a valley in the previous chapter. In chapter 7, we read of a man in whom he could say there was nothing good in him. In me, no good thing dwells. Here was a man groaning under the knowledge of how he had fallen short of God's commandments. 
Who will liberate me from this body of sin and death? But the Lord has caught him up into heavenly places at the sight of what God has done for believing Christians. And so to this end, he makes a a statement which is the sort of thing that ought to arrest us in this latter part of Romans chapter 8. He begins this sort of discussion of the, the comprehensive nature of the goodness and generosity of God, especially in verse 28, where he says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, Romans 8.28, that's the sort of verse that perhaps we've had read to us when we are in the midst of terrible afflictions and burdens, when, when life seems to not be going our way, and, and in fact we're bearing under heavy burdens, problems with health, problems with family, problems with relationships, dreams shattered, or perhaps of a more spiritual nature, feeling the weight of being forsaken of God. And then someone may, may use this verse and, and say, well, all things work together for good. The God who is creator of all and the Lord of all, he governs all things for the good of his people, those who have been called into fellowship with him through the gospel, those who love him from the heart. These are the ones for whom all things work together for him. He proceeds in This way, doesn't he? Verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Them he also, and whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. He's saying this, Undeserved favor, this amazing grace and generosity of God, it stretches all the way back into eternity past. God of his own good pleasure has foreknown the people whom he would predestinate, whom he would bring into fellowship with himself and bring into a kind of vital holiness, making them like unto his son, Jesus Christ. And likewise, this would all be done for the glory of Christ himself, that he may be known as the firstborn of many brethren, as the one who is exalted above all, to whom all glory belongs. Amazing things these. Here we have the amazing truths of what God has purposed to do for sinners like you and I. But as we reflect upon these things, if we really are going through a season where we are tempted to think hard thoughts of God, they may come to us as just so many words. Yes, we can hear that in the abstract, God is working all things together for his own. We may hear that God has indeed chosen his own to this eternal salvation which he is bringing them to. 
But unless we would see them in the context of Christ himself, as this glorious Savior sent by God, in whom belong, in whom is found all the blessings of God, we are liable to go astray. We are liable to become confused and overwhelmed by all these things. And so it is good that he transitions to this, what we see in verse 32. Let's read 31 as well to, to get the flow of the argument. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If you are here today and you are not persuaded of the amazing generosity and love of God. Here is a text that ought to shatter all of your doubt and unbelief. Here is a rock-solid argument that ought to captivate you and bring you into a state of wonder and awe. Consider this that is laid before us, the logic of this text. He that spared not his own son. Now what do we have there? We have something of a contrast, don't we? We have a statement about God's son. And of course, uh, that is is not foreign to this chapter in, in one way, in that he's been speaking about the many sons of God in a particular way in verse 14, for example. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Here we have the great truth that all Christians, all believers, they are brought into the fellowship of a spiritual family. They call upon God as their father. They know him as their father. And so whether we be sons or daughters, we are, if we are Christians, the sons and daughters, the children of God. But where God has these many sons by way of his grace, he is one son who is his natural son. He that spared not his own son, we read in Verse 32, a great and glorious mystery that this one true God is both Father and Son together with the Holy Spirit. From eternity past, this glorious God the Father has begotten a Son of His own likeness. Without beginning, this Son has received the fullness of deity by way of this generation or begetting. He is the natural Son of God. As it is said in another place, the very brightness of the Father's glory, the exact image of His person. He possesses all of the divine perfections, all of the wisdom, all of the goodness, all of the, the perfections of God. But this almighty 
Son of God, who is eternally in the bosom of his Father, as John 1 says, who is beloved of his Father, treasured of his Father in the eternal Godhead. It is this one of whom it is said that God spared not his own Son. When I hear that verse, I'm brought back to that amazing story about Abraham. I'm sure you've You've heard, children, about that story of Father Abraham. There was um, this great patriarch of the Lord, this great father of the faithful. God came to him one day and said, Take your son, your son of promise, your son Isaac, your own treasured flesh and blood. Bring him up on Mount Moriah. Plunge a knife into his chest. Offer him as a sacrifice unto your God. And so this Abraham, so strong was his faith in the word and promise of God, he was persuaded that his son Isaac could be raised from the dead. And he, he brought him up to that tall, that mountain Moriah, his son asking him, Father, where is the sacrifice? He said, God will provide a sacrifice, my son took him up to the mountain, bound him hand and foot and and raised that knife, ready to plunge plunge that knife into his chest. And exactly at the final moment there, you have the angel of the Lord saying, Stop, Abraham, now I know that you fear God. And God did provide a sacrifice, providing a substitute, even a ram that could be offered in the place of that Isaac, and and God spared Isaac. God spared Isaac, though he is the creator of all, able to both uh, to make alive and to kill and to destroy. Out of his goodness, he spared that Isaac. And you see that throughout his dealings with humanity, a God ready to judge the world for its terrible sin against the Lord, yet he spares Noah. Noah finds grace in the sight of God, and his family is spared there in the ark. And there is uh, judgment coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah for their terrible sins, crying out unto heaven, and God spares. He spares Lot and his family. Through it all, the age of of this world, does it ever astonish you that despite all of the people who shake their fists at God, who, who reject God and his word, and his commandments, yet God has spared this world, not consuming it with fire, but preserving it, that there yet may be a day of grace for sinners. And my unconverted friend, you who have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, who have lived all these years apart from him, not needing him, the reality is that God has spared you Though you are an enemy of his and though you deserve to be plunged into the fires of hell, you woke up this morning and you drew breath. You woke up this morning and you saw the sunlight. The Lord brought you into this place to hear the preaching of the word. The Lord has spared you even to this very hour. Amazing the mercy of God and sparing so many. But here we have a text that says that this glorious, amazing son whom he has loved so dearly, he spared not his own son. 
And so it was. And though his son deserved all glory and all worship and all honor, yet the way was made whereby this glorious son of God would humble himself and make himself the form of a servant. And so in the fullness of, co- of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law. He was born into a poor Hebrew family, growing up in the, 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 the shop of a carpenter, living in a working class kind of life there in the countryside of Galilee. And, and yet one day he entered into his public ministry, declaring war upon the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ, entering into his, his ministry, he, he cast out demons, he raised the dead, he gave spiritual liberty to the captives, displaying love to those who were cast away from society. Those who were despised by all found a hearing with him. This amazing son of God, he lived a righteous life, he fulfilled all the commandments of his father. And yet the time came where he knew he must be delivered into the hands of wicked men. The corrupt government officials, the corrupt religious establishment, those who were self-righteous and saw no need for the Savior, they loathed him and despised him for his preaching of righteousness, for his exposing of their hypocrisy. They were those who fulfilled the prophecy that Um, the, the, The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. God laid this foundation of Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, but the enemies of the Lord, they stumbled at him. They were offended at him, and they sought to kill him. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, he was delivered. He was delivered. He was not spared. He was not spared all the agonies of that torturous death which came upon him. He had his his clothes torn from him. He had his very uh, flesh striped with whips. He was made a scorn of of both God above and and heaven below as he was uh, and earth below as he was raised up there on the cross. But more so than just the spectacle was the spiritual torture of that moment. As it were, there you have God the Father taking a knife and plunging it into the the chest of his son. As he experienced all that it was to be forsaken of God. As he experienced the wrath of God and and he who who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. It says in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. God was pleased to pour out his wrath upon his righteous servant and only begotten son. Not not because there was any cause of wrath in Christ himself, but as he was being dealt with as the representative of his people as the one who was to endure all agonies and hell and torments 
in the place of a hell-deserving people. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. What we see here, congregation, is an astonishing thing. I could understand it. If the Bible would teach us that God so loved his son that he gave a million worlds to his son. And yet the Bible teaches something that's far more mysterious. It teaches that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Were there any other way, surely God would have taken it. So great was his love for his son. And yet God loved his people so much that he purposed to give this way of bringing them into fellowship with himself. And that is that his own son not be spared, but that he be the one who brought about this salvation. As it says earlier on in this chapter, verse 3, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. It was for sins that the son of God was not spared. God's hatred, his wrath against sin was such that not even a single sin can go unpunished. Sin is no trifle. It is nothing that can be ignored. God must punish sin, either in ourselves or in a substitute, in this, his only begotten son. And here we have, congregation, the greatest proof, the most perfect and unquestionable evidence of the love of God, of the generosity of God. How dare we, congregation, how dare we ever think of God as someone who holds back anything? How dare we think about, some, about him as someone who would deny us anything good when he has demonstrated his love and commend it to us in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, the thing about this text is not only that you see that this generosity of God is proven, but you see how vast it is, how it encompasses all things that would be worth even mentioning or thinking about. For it says here in verse 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The argument here is really from the greater display of God's love and generosity to the lesser. The idea here is that if it's so astonishing and stupendous and amazing that God would send his son and not spare him even the death upon the cross, then anything else that could be given to us will surely follow. Compared to what God has already done for his precious people, nothing else can possibly measure up. So you take this argument. Perhaps there's someone who's offended at this. You hear this and you say, Preacher, I can't possibly believe that you understand the level of problems in my life. I can't possibly think that you would say such things to me if you knew the kind of burdens that God has given me. Here I am, and and everything that I thought I had, it has been lost. 
Or perhaps it's the case that I'm living from day to day and I don't experience his blessedness as other people do. Other people are walking with the Lord. Other people feeling his closeness, but he seems as a stranger to me. He's forsaken me. He's not dealt with me as he has with others. Well, hear this. Hear this. Here we have an amazing display of God's love and sending forth his son. And the argument that is following here is that the heart of love of God displayed in his son will surely accomplish all else for those whom he sets his love upon. Notice what he had said there previously. Moreover, whom he did predestinate. Sorry, verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Consider that. What it means to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. Consider here we have Jesus Christ. He endured the very harshest treatment in his earthly ministry. He endured the pains of hell. He endured being forsaken by all those who claimed to love him. He endured the hatred of man as well as the wrath of God. And yet it says that this one did not grumble, did not complain in the lot that had been given to him, but for the sake of the joy that was set before him, He endured the cross, despising the shame for the sake of the joy that was set before him. Here is one who so delighted in the salvation of his people that he willingly endured what the Lord had appointed for him. He endured that cross. And so shall we who see this amazing display of love, shall we look at the cross which Christ would have us take up and shall we despise it? Shall we complain and say, God is dealing harsh with me? He is a hard master. He would have, he would have me to, to sow and to gather, and he gives nothing in return. He is like the Pharaoh of old who demands that I make bricks without straw. Not so. Not so whatsoever. If you would but look at it from the perspective of the Lord, The afflictions that he gives to you, dear one, they are to conform you to the image of Christ. Lay up all of your complaints before God. Say, God has not been fair with me in this case. God has given me too much in that case. God has withheld the good from me in the other case. Put all your complaints on the table. Look at them. Lay them before the Lord. And let me tell you something. Which one of those things will matter beyond the grave? Which one of the things that you want from God can you take with you into eternity? I think if you would think rightly, you'd say that nothing, nothing that the world has to offer, no temporal blessing will ultimately last. But let me tell you something. The holiness of the Lord's people, that is forever. We've only one life to live. It will soon be passed. But what is done for Christ, that will last and last. 
for never-ending ages, there shall be the proclamation of the Lord's grace towards his people. And the, the good works and the righteousness of his people will adorn the Lamb and his people forever. It will all serve as testimonies to the Lord's grace and saving a people unto himself. And God will deal bountifully and generously to reward each and every sacrifice which we give. And so you see, congregation, whatever it may be in this life that the Lord gives us by way of chastisement or suffering, it is all working to lessen our love for this world and to increase our love for God. It is preparing us for an endless eternity of enjoying and glorifying Him. This is the lot of those who trust in the Son of God. This is the inheritance of those for whom the Son of God dies. And so we see that this holds true. Just as there's not a sparrow that can fall to the ground without your heavenly Father knowing. Just as the very hairs of your head are numbered. So everything works together for those who love God. And are the called according to his purpose. It's a vast generosity here, congregation. And can you not see, even if you don't understand this yourself, even if you've never experienced what it is to be caught up in the wonder of a God dealing with you, a hell-deserving sinner, and granting you the inheritance of the sons of God, those who've been redeemed from condemnation unto holiness and service and eternal life. And surely you can see that that is much better as a way to live. To live as a stranger of God, to despise God and to turn away from God, that is not living. That is just a continual dying. But here... Here is how generous God is dealing with sinners like you and I and bring us into this state of grace and blessing whereby we know him as our father and we serve him, our Lord and generous benefactor in the way of gratitude. But I know this as well, congregation. Not only is this generosity proven and vast, it is also free. It is also free. No. We have here in verse 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, I wonder if there's someone here and the reason why these sorts of things are mysterious to you is that you have been seeking to appease a God of your own imagination rather than the true and living God of the Holy Scriptures, the God with whom you've been dealing with is one of your own imagination. It is a God who, who can be pleased with this thing or that thing, this obedience or that obedience, such that his love will finally rest upon you. 
And so you've known those who enjoyed the love of God, those who rejoiced in the salvation of Jesus Christ, but you've been a stranger to that. You've never experienced that. So for a time you were saying, well, I've got to get this straightened in my life. I've got to, got to pray this hard. I've got to in, involve myself in this amount of, of good things. And then finally, finally, God's love can be enjoyed by the likes of me. You see, congregation, not one of us, not one of us can give anything to God that we've not received from his hand. It says in the Psalms, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is his, everything, every part of you, he already possesses. And so what is it? What is it that you think you can do for him that can finally earn his love? There's nothing. There's there's nothing. Notice, what it says there in the following verse, who can lay any char- anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. God is sovereign. God is free. God displays his love in the lives of sinners utterly without constraint. According to his bountiful good pleasure, he reveals the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He calls them unto fellowship with himself. He indwells them with his Holy Spirit. He fills them with the hope and the joy unspeakable of which it is spoken here. He does this freely. You can never do anything to earn this love of God. He gives it as a generous father. As the source of all blessing and goodness, it is his delight to give salvation to sinners. But this is the foundation of the of the, all the offers of the gospel, friend. Don't hear about this sovereign God, this utterly free God, and say, well, because I can't control him, because I can't influence him, because I can't do this, because I can't do that, then ultimately I'm helpless. Indeed, you are helpless. Indeed, the natural heart cannot please God. You cannot turn yourself towards the Lord, but cannot he call you? Cannot he speak unto you about this son whom he did not spare? Cannot he offer to you today that if you will but fall upon him, if you will but cast yourself upon him and his mercy, do you not think that he will receive you? Do you not think that in that place, in this humble trust in the gospel of salvation, you may discover that you are numbered among God's chosen ones, beloved before the foundation of the world. And maybe you say, I think I've fled to him. I think I've trusted in him, but it's not clear yet. It's not something I really have, have confidence in. I, from one day to the next, I'm not sure if I'm a believer or not. Well, well, let me tell you something. You can look into the most beautiful window, gazing upon the most glorious skyline. But if what you're doing is you're taking a great big handful of sand and rubbing it in your eyes, you won't see a single thing. The way in which people discover the love of God, sovereign, free in the gospel, is by looking in faith 
upon the Lord Jesus. But what is it that you've put in your heart, put in your mind that has caused you to look away? What is it? Is it the love of this world? Is it the self-righteousness that you think you possess? Is it something that, that has taken root in your heart such that you are resentful towards God? Well, it may take, take some time in order to clear that vision, but let me help you with that. The first step is to stop putting more sand in your eyes. And the next step is to bathe your eyes. Bathe your heart and mind in the, the pure water of the word. Let it wash over you. Hear these words again. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Friend, if you would know how great the love of, of God is, how completely wide open it is to hell-deserving sinners. If you would see the wide arms of your loving Heavenly Father ready to receive, ready to embrace, ready to, to smother all of your objections, all of your doubts, all of your fears in the great embrace of His love, and you would not be content to live as you do. Oh, my desire... My desire is that we would forever be free from hard thoughts of God. This can be what is the most hard thing for even a true child of God, that we don't think upon God as we ought. We are not filled with the awe and wonder of his salvation the way we really should be. Let us remember, congregation. Let us remember this amazing testimony of the gospel. Here is the inestimable treasure of the gospel that nothing can be compared to. This is what should work in our, in our hearts such that we rejoice with him with joy unspeakable. Think what it means that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Think on it more and more and more until it comes to be seen for what it is as the greatest gift that could ever be bestowed. All praise unto this great God, all honor and glory unto this 